Section 7 of Ways of Woodfolk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ways of Woodfolk by William J. Long. Chapter 6 The Builders, Part 1. A curious bit of wildlife came to me at dusk one day in the wilderness. It was midwinter, and the snow lay deep. I was sitting alone on a fallen tree, waiting for the moon to rise so that I could follow the faint snowshoe track across a barren three miles, then through a mile of forest to another trail that led to camp. I had followed a caribou too far that day, and this was the result. Feeling along my own track by moonlight, with the thermometer sinking rapidly to the twenty below zero point. There is scarcely any twilight in the woods. In ten minutes it would be quite dark, and I was wishing that I had blankets and an axe so that I could camp where I was, when a big gray shadow came stealing towards me through the trees. It was a Canada lynx. My fingers gripped the rifle hard, and the right mitten seemed to slip off of itself as I caught the glare of his fierce yellow eyes. But the eyes were not looking at me at all. Indeed, he had not noticed me. He was stealing along, crouched low in the snow, his ears back, his stub tail twitching nervously, his whole attention fixed tensely on something beyond me out on the barren. I wanted his beautiful skin, but I wanted more to find out what he was after. So I kept still and watched. At the edge of the barren, he crouched under a dwarf spruce, settled himself deeper in the snow by a wriggle or two, till his feet were well under him, and his balance perfect, and the red fire blazed in his eyes, and his big muscles quivered, and then he hurled himself forward one, two, a dozen mighty bounds through flying snow, and he landed with a screech on the dome of a beaver house. There he jumped about, shaking an imaginary beaver like a fury, and gave another screech that made one's spine tingle. That over, he stood very still looking off over the beaver roofs that dotted the shore of a little pond there. The blaze died out of his eyes, a different look crept into them. He put his nose down to a tiny hole in the mound, the beaver's ventilator, and took a long sniff, while his whole body seemed to descend with the warm, rich odor that poured up into his hungry nostrils. Then he rolled his head sadly and went away. Now all that was pure acting. A lynx likes beaver meat better than anything else, and this fellow had caught some of the colony, no doubt, in the well-fed autumn days, as they worked on their dam and houses. Sharp hunger made him remember them, as he came through the wood on his nightly hunt after hares. He knew well that the beavers were safe, that months of intense cold had made their two-foot mud walls like granite. But he came, nevertheless, just to pretend he had caught one, and to remember how good his last full meal smelled when he ate it in October. It was all so boy-like, so unexpected there in the heart of the wilderness, that I quite forgot that I wanted the lynx's skin. I was hungry, too, and went out for a sniff at the ventilator, and it smelled good. I remembered the time once when I had eaten beaver, and was glad to get it. I walked about among the houses. On every dome there were lynx tracks old and new, 
and the prints of a blunt nose in the snow. Evidently he came often to dine on the smell of good dinners. I looked the way he had gone, and began to be sorry for him. But there were the beavers, safe and warm and fearless, within two feet of me, listening undoubtedly to the strange steps without. And that was good, for they are the most interesting creatures in all the wilderness. Most of us know the beaver chiefly in a simile. Working like a beaver, or busy as a beaver, is one of those proverbial expressions that people accept without comment or curiosity. It is about one-third true, which is a generous proportion of truth for a proverb. In winter, for five long months at least, he does nothing but sleep and eat and keep warm. Lazy as a beaver is then a good figure. And summertime, ah, that's just one long holiday, and the beavers are jolly as grigs, with never a thought of work from morning till night. When the snow is gone and the streams are clear, and the twitter of bird songs meet the beaver's ear as he rises from the dark passage under water that leads to his house, then he forgets all settled habits and joins in the general heyday of nature. The well-built house that sheltered him from storm and cold and defied even the wolverine to dig its owner out is deserted for any otter's den or chance hole in the bank where he may sleep away the sunlight in peace. The great dam upon which he toiled so many nights is left to the mercy of the freshet or the canoeman's axe, and no plash of falling water through a break, that sound which in autumn or winter brings the beaver like a flash, will trouble his wise little head for a moment. All the long summer he belongs to the tribe of Ishmael, wandering through lakes and streams wherever fancy leads him. It's as if he were bound to see the world after being cooped up in his narrow quarters all winter. Even the strong family ties, one of the most characteristic and interesting things in beaver life, are for the time loosened. Every family group, when it breaks up housekeeping in the spring, represents five generations. First there are the two old beavers, heads of the family and absolute rulers, who first engineered the big dam and houses and have directed repairs for nobody knows how long. Next in importance are the baby beavers, no bigger than musquashes, with fur-like silk velvet, and eyes always wide open at the wonders of the first season out. Then the one and two-year-olds, frisky as boys let loose from school, always in mischief, and having to be looked after, and occasionally nipped. Then the three-year-olds who presently leave the group, and go their separate happy ways in search of mates. And so the long days go by in a kind of careless summer excursion. And when one sometimes finds their camping ground in his own summer roving through the wilderness, he looks upon it with curious sympathy. Fellow campers are they, pitching their tents by sunny lakes and alder-fringed trout-haunted brooks, always close to nature's heart, and loving the wild free life much as he does himself. But when the days grow short and chill, and the twitter of warblers gives place to the honk of passing geese, and wild ducks gather in the lakes, then the heart of the beaver goes back to his home, and presently he follows his heart. September finds them gathered about the old dam again, the older heads filled with plans of repair and new houses and winter food and many other things. The grown-up males have brought their mates back to the old home. 
the females have found their places in other family groups it is then that the beaver begins to be busy his first concern is for a stout dam across the stream that will give him a good-sized pond and plenty of deep water to understand this one must remember that the beaver intends to shut himself in a kind of prison all winter he knows well that he's not safe on land a moment after the snow falls that some prowling lucivy or wolverine would find his tracks and follow him and that his escape to water would be cut off by thick ice and so he plans a big claw-proof house with no entrance save a tunnel in the middle which leads through the bank to the bottom of his artificial pond once this is frozen over he cannot get out till the spring sun sets him free but he likes a big pond that he may exercise a bit under water when he comes down for his dinner and a deep pond that he may feel sure the hardest winter will never freeze down to his doorway and shut him in still more important the beaver's food is stored on the bottom and it would never do to trust it to shallow water else some severe winter it would get frozen into the ice and the beavers starve in their prison ten to fifteen feet usually satisfies their instinct for safety but to get that depth of water especially on shallow streams requires a huge dam and an enormous amount of work to say nothing of planning beaver dams are solid structures always built up of logs brush stones and driftwood well knit together by alder poles one summer in canoeing a wild and unknown stream i met fourteen dams within a space of five miles through two of these my indian and i broke a passage with our axes the others were so solid that it was easier to unload our canoe and make a portage than to break through dams are found close together like that when a beaver colony has occupied a stream for years unmolested the food would above the first dam being cut off they move downstream for the beaver always cuts on the banks above his dam and lets the current work for him in transportation sometimes when the banks are such that a pond cannot be made three or four dams will be built close together the backwater of one reaching up to the one above like a series of locks on a canal this is to keep the colony together and yet give room for play and storage there is the greatest difference of opinion as to the intelligence displayed by the beavers in choosing a site for their dam one observer claiming skill ingenuity even reason for the beavers another claiming a mere instinctive haphazard piling together of materials anywhere in the stream i have seen perhaps a hundred different dams in the wilderness nearly all of them which were well placed occasionally i have found one that looked like a stupid piece of work two or three hundred feet of alder brush and gravel across the widest part of a stream when by building just above or below a dam one-fourth the length might have given them better water this must be said however for the builders that perhaps they found a better soil for digging their tunnels or a more convenient spot for their houses near their own dam or that they knew what they wanted better than their critic did i think undoubtedly the young beavers often make mistakes but i think also from studying a good many dams that they profit by disaster and build better and that on the whole their mistakes are not proportionally greater 
than those of human builders. Sometimes a dam proves a very white elephant on their hands. The site is not well chosen, or the stream difficult, and the restrained water pours round the ends of their dam, cutting them away. They build the dam longer at once, but again the water pours round on its work of destruction. So they keep on building an interminable structure till the frosts come and they must cut their wood and tumble their houses together in a desperate hurry to be ready when the ice closes over them. But on alder streams where the current is sluggish and the soil soft, one sometimes finds a wonderfully ingenious device for remedying the above difficulty. When the dam is built and the water deep enough for safety, the beavers dig a canal around one end of the dam to carry off the surplus water. I know of nothing in all the woods and fields that brings one closer in thought and sympathy to the little wild folk than to come across one of these canals. The water pouring safely through it past the beavers' handiwork. The dam stretching straight and solid across the stream and the domed houses rising beyond. Once I found where the beavers had utilized man's work. A huge log dam had been built on a wilderness stream to secure a head of water for driving logs from the lumber woods. When the pines and fourteen-inch spruce were all gone, the works were abandoned and the dam left, with the gates open, of course. A pair of young beavers prospecting for a winter home found the place and were suited exactly. They rolled a sunken log across the gates for a foundation, filled them up with alder bushes and stones, and their work was done. When I found the place, they had a pond a mile wide to play in. Their house was in a beautiful spot under a big hemlock, and their doorway slanted off into twenty feet of water. That site was certainly well chosen. Another dam that I found one winter when caribou hunting was wonderfully well placed. No engineer could have chosen better. It was made by the same colony the lynx was after, and just below where he went through his pantomime for my benefit, his tracks were there too. The barrens of which I spoke are treeless plains in the northern forest, the beds of ancient shallow lakes. The beavers found one with a stream running through it, followed the stream down to the foot of the barren, where two wooded points came out from either side and almost met. Here was formerly the outlet, and here the beavers built their dam, and so made the old lake over again. It must be a wonderfully fine place in summer, two or three thousand acres of playground full of cranberries and luscious roots. In winter it is too shallow to be of much use, save for a few acres about the beavers' doorways. There are three ways of dam building in general use among the beavers. The first is for use on sluggish, alder-fringed streams, where they can build up from the bottom. Two or three sunken logs form the foundation, which is from three to five feet broad. Sticks, driftwood, and stout poles, which the beavers cut on the banks, are piled on this and weighted with stones and mud. The stones are rolled in from the bank or move considerable distances under water. The mud is carried in the beaver's paws, which he holds up against his chin so as to carry a big handful without spilling. Beavers love such streams with their alder shade and sweet grasses and fringe of wild meadow better than all other places. 
and by the way most of the natural meadows and half the ponds of new england were made by beavers if you go to the foot of any little meadow in the wood and dig at the lower end where the stream goes out you'll find sometimes ten feet under the surface the remains of the first dam that formed the meadow when the water flowed back and killed the trees the second kind of dam is for swift streams stout ten-foot brush is the chief material the brush is floated down to the spot selected the tops are weighted down with stones and the butts left free pointing downstream such dams must be built out from the sides of course they are generally arched the convex side being upstream so as to make a stronger structure when the arch closes in the middle the lower side of the dam is banked heavily with earth and stones that is shrewd policy on the beaver's part for once the arch is closed by brush the current can no longer sweep away the earth and stones used for the embankment the third kind is the strongest and easiest to build it is for places where big trees lean out over the stream three or four beavers gather about a tree and begin to cut sitting up on their broad tails one stands above them on the bank apparently directing the work in a short time the tree is nearly cut through from the underside then the beaver above begins to cut down carefully with the first warning crack he jumps aside and the tree falls straight across where it is wanted all the beavers then disappear and begin cutting the branches that rest on the bottom slowly the tree settles till its trunk is at the right height to make the top of the dam the upper branches are then trimmed close to the trunk and are woven with alders among the long stubs sticking down from the trunk into the river bed stones mud and brush are used liberally to fill the chinks and in a remarkably short time the dam is complete when you meet such a dam on the stream you are canoeing don't attempt to break through you will find it shorter by several hours to unload and make a carry End of section 7